moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another episode of Cascading Leadership. We are in missing host formation. LB is not with us today. I'm uh, your friendly neighborhood talent strategy nerd, Dr. Jim. And with us today, we have another great featured guest to, to talk to us on the topic of buyer-centric social selling. Say that five times fast. And we have the second Canadian to be on the show. So this is a big event. So our featured guest is Steve Watt. He is the director at Seismic. Steve, welcome to the show. Glad to have you on. Thanks, Jim. I'm excited to be here. I've really enjoyed the conversations that we've had on LinkedIn and the conversations we've had one-to-one, and I'm, I'm glad to take it to the next level now. It's going to be a lot of fun chatting. I think there's an interesting story behind how we uh, hooked up on LinkedIn, and uh, we might get into that throughout the, uh, the course of the conversation. Now, I, I just want to put this caveat out here. Every time we have a Canadian on, and we've only had two, the audience thinks that we're going to talk hockey or we're going to talk figure skating or, I don't know, curling or Molson. And that, that, that certainly could come into the conversation. Who doesn't like talking about Molson? But Steve's area of expertise is buyer-centric social selling. And we're going to define what that means, but there's an intentionality to this conversation. And I wanted to have Steve on because I'm of the belief that sales as a function is fundamentally broken. And I think that sets the stage for the conversation that we're about to have. Steve, when you hear that from someone like me who is in sales and is in a sales leadership position, how do you respond to that? I tend to agree. I think what's happened is that everyone read the same books, everyone established the same playbook, everybody's doing the same thing, and it's incredibly hard to rise above the noise if you're doing the same thing as everybody else does, especially in a world where your buyers are sick and tired of it. Everyone read Predictable Revenue, everyone's been built out these big outbound teams, everybody obsesses over their cadences of outbound and their subject lines and their their all the minutiae of outbound selling. But there's three big problems. One, you're already good at it. Like you've been tuning this machine for 10 years. Really, you can't get much better at it. It's diminishing marginal returns for one thing. Second problem is all your competitors are good at it too. So that because they've been tuning their machine for a decade. And then the third thing is buyers don't want that. They're tired. They're tired of being hunted. They're tired of being prospected. And so everybody is just trying to squeeze that last percentage of impact out of a machine that's been tuned to death and is no longer working. That is a great lead in. And it should be no surprise that I don't disagree with anything that you said. But there's some interesting technology implications that are feeding into this. Uh, There's some interesting things that are happening in the world of work where buyers are becoming more protective of their attention and of their time. How does that impact what most sales teams are are currently doing if most sales teams are still in the spray and pray method in terms of how they do outreach? And if the buyer 
is becoming more and more isolated from sales messaging. How do you fix that? You got to sort of take several steps back, I believe. Because I don't believe you get there in the same mindset. I don't believe you get there by doing the same thing a little bit better which is basically where everybody is. I think you need to think differently. You need to act differently. You need to measure differently. That's critical. And you need to really come at it from a different direction. And I think a lot of sellers lack empathy for buyers. A lot of sellers have never been a buyer. If you have never sat on the other side of that desk, if you have never been the one who holds the budget and is hunted by people, you probably lack empathy for what they go through. Sellers know extremely well how hard it is to sell. And it's true. It is extremely, it's a hard job. And I'm not disparaging sellers in any way. But I think a lot of them lack the empathy for how hard it is to buy and how hard it is to decide who to listen to, who to spend your time with, and ultimately who to trust. And the stakes are high for buyers. Right? It's not just about protecting their time. It's about protecting their internal reputation, protecting their job. If they buy wrong, they can burn their reputation. They can even get fired here. They're, the stakes are high for buyers. The world is incredibly noisy and complicated. And everybody is coming at them, telling them that their solution and their product is absolutely perfect. It is hard to buy. And I think that has to be at the foundation of this re-examining what you're doing and how you're doing it and why you're doing it and how you're measuring it. And that is at the foundation of buyer centricity. And I don't think a lot of salespeople are. If I bob my head anymore, people are going to think watching this video that I'm a freaking bobblehead. At some point, I'm almost tempted to just yell out in the middle of the things that you're saying and say, preach. You're absolutely dead on. So that's a great couple of points that you've shared out in terms of the need for empathy and a need for the understanding of how buyers are buying, what's at risk for the buyer, putting yourself in the shoes of the buyer. Those are all great points. And that's all having downstream impacts into you know their behavior. So I'm a salesperson. I'm a sales leader who pretends to know marketing. And all I care about, and this is the salesperson's persona, all I care about is hitting my quota. So how do I bridge the gap? How do I be more empathetic and more understanding of what the buyer is going through and lay the foundation to shift what I'm doing? Set the stage for me and give me a deep view into where the buyer is right now. If you start from understanding how hard it is to buy and you start from that position of understanding the stakes for them, then you're able to position yourself and your firm in a different way to stand out, to stand above your competitors who likely are lacking that empathy and are, again, as I said before, running the old playbooks and, and starting with the old mindsets. Why is it so hard to buy in B2B? We talked about high stakes, obviously. We've already covered that. Also, though, you know, decisions are complex, right? Nobody is buying B2B solutions on their own. We all know that. But again, most sellers and most sales leaders come at it from their own perspective. They say, yeah, there's a large buying group. There's a lot of stakeholders. So here's what it means. What I challenge you to say is, what does that mean for your buyer? It means that they have to run a lot of internal conversations, a lot. They have to expend a lot of internal political capital, reputation capital, even to bring the buying committee together, never mind 
to make a decision, never mind yet again to make a decision for you. They have a lot that is going on behind the scenes. And trust looms really large here. And this is, I think, this is where we start to move into what can I do about it as a seller, is I really need to focus on how I build trust. And a lot of conventional sales activities do not build trust. And frankly, some of them burn trust. But like, again, now put yourself into the buyer's shoes. So if I'm dealing with two salespeople from two competing solutions, one of them, I don't know him. I don't trust him. He's just a guy coming at me with something that might be valuable. How am I going to approach it? I'm sure as hell not going to bring my boss into the conversation or my colleagues, my peers, or even my team into the conversation quite yet. I'm going to take a one-on-one call with this person. I'm going to be vetting them. And I'm going to be looking for a reason to say no, because this guy has come at me from nowhere. So if I'm even willing to engage with him, which is a whole other thing, but let's just say that I am, my guard is up big time. And I'm going into this call alone. So you're already, it's going to be a slow process. Now, this other seller is not coming at me from nowhere. This person and this person's entire firm have been building their reputation and building their trust in public in such a way that I feel I know them, I understand them, I like them, and I've maybe even got the beginnings of a sense of trust and a sense of confidence that they very well might be right for us. First of all, I'm more likely to take that call. I'm far more likely to not do it alone. I'm far more likely to bring maybe a couple of peers into the call, maybe a couple key members of my team into that call. So the trusted seller has already built extra momentum, has already began to bring the buying committee together at the very first call. And that momentum can carry through so far. It it all starts with understanding the risks and, and the difficulties that they're going through, and then asking, how can I make myself more trusted to them than the 12 other people coming at them from 12 different angles who all just want a piece of their time and all want a piece of their money? That's phenomenally said. I want to distill this down into the simplest terms that we want to express. There is a internal buyer dynamic and there's an external seller dynamic that has to be met in order for the relationship to move forward. I always try to teach when selling, the relationship comes first. <laughs> and to the point where I'm sure my my folks that uh, have reported into me in the past kind of roll their eyes when they hear it. You would never go up to a stranger on the street and say, hey, stranger, I'm Jim. Hello, let's be best friends. You might do it if you're five. <laughs> you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that as an adult. So as a seller, you have to focus on the relationship first. And there's some fundamental aspects of how that relationship is built. So I'll hand that off to you in a second. But on the buyer side, it appears to me that you're telling me that the buying decision is mostly made, or at least, I don't know, 80% of the way there before a buyer will engage with a potential seller. So sellers are operating under the wrong assumption that just because they're talking, there is a close to the deal interaction that's happening. Where do sellers get it wrong in terms of how they should build those relationships? And where is the buyer actually in the buying journey when they engage in that conversation? I, th- I think buyers can be at a lot of different places. And I wouldn't go so far as to say the buying decision is 80% made before the first call. I think that would be too far. But in a lot of cases, the seller isn't even getting the first call. 
because they're not laying the right foundations. I would like to root this in a little more. Okay, Steve, if you're saying, if I believe what you say now, what does it mean to me? How, like, how do I need to operate differently? And let's focus on LinkedIn because I think that is a place where there's such a massive opportunity to think differently and operate differently. And most people and most organizations, most sales organizations are missing it. So you know, let's start with your profile. Most people treat their profile as either their resume or in a case of some salespeople, it's their brag sheet, right? It's either a resume where it's a bare bones, boring list of places you used to work, not very interesting or inspiring, or worse yet, it's the brag sheet, right? It's 12 consecutive quarters of exceeding quota and you know, three years running, been to president's club, master negotiator. It's like, are you looking for your next job or are you actually trying to serve and sell and succeed in your current job. And like th those brag sheets are incredibly off-putting because yeah. as a buyer, if I'm deciding whether or not to even take that first call with you and I read that brag sheet, I'm like, okay, this guy does not care about me, does not care about my outcomes. He only cares about his, his own quota team and his own paycheck. And he'll probably do or say anything to squeeze money out of me. You've turned me off massively there. The resume doesn't so much turn me off, fails to inspire me and it fails to educate me. It's like, great, you worked for these five other companies over the last 15, good for you. How about you reframe the job to be done of your profile and make it a buyer-centric document that explains who you are, who your firm is, who you help, who you serve, why you're different, what sorts of outcomes you and your firm can help deliver to your clients. Now, when I read it, it's, oh, okay, this person doesn't just care about themselves, they also care about me. So that's... Just fundamental, 80 or 90% of salespeople have awful LinkedIn profiles. And, and it's not their fault because that's what they've been taught to do. A yep. decade ago, people said, LinkedIn is your resume online. Upload your resume. And it's changed so much what buyers expect from that. But I don't think a lot of companies and a lot of people have got the memo. So that's the foundational thing. Just fix your profile. But then the next thing is, now what? How do you operate on LinkedIn? And this also starts with mindsets about what's the job to be done, not of the profile, but of the entire LinkedIn thing. What is it? And yeah. what's it for? And I think there's three critically damaging mindsets here. One is, well, it's a job board. That ties into the last thing. It's a place where I go every few years to get a job. Huge missed opportunity. We already covered that. Second thing is, well, it's a broadcast advertising medium. It's a place to blast our company's case studies and hey we won an award and hey our ceo was quoted in fortune magazine broadcast holler at the world this is a very old school advertising mindset and nobody is on linkedin to read your ads nobody's there to read your promotional content so it just goes right past them and then the third mindset and this is where most sellers are, many sellers are, is that it's a hunting ground. Like it's, it's a giant Rolodex and I'm just going to go in. I'm going to find all the people who I wish were my customers and, and I'm going to barrel myself, barge into their world. And I'm going to be at them with connection requests. I'm going to be at them with in-mails. I'm going to be at them with requests for them to take a call with me. And they're just barging into people's world. And here's again where that lack of empathy comes out. They either don't know or they don't care. That same person you're trying to barge into, 50 other people are barging into that person's world this week. And that person is just going to keep all of you at bay because you're all undifferentiated to him or her. You're all just 
sellers doing the same thing, trying to take my time, take my energy and ultimately take my money. And I'm, I'm just not here for you, right? I'm not here. I'm not on LinkedIn for your ads. And I'm also not here on LinkedIn for your sales pitches. Why am I on LinkedIn? Why is anybody there? Let's get to the heart of it. People are only on LinkedIn for two reasons. You know, that is so awesome. And when this hits YouTube, people are going to be thinking, what kind of music is Jim listening to? Because his head is just bobbing like he's listening to some some down-tempo deep cuts, man. Steve, that is awesome. So I want to dig in in a couple of areas before we talk about why are people on LinkedIn? So those three things that it's a job board, it's a broadcast medium, and then hunting ground. So that's had some interesting downstream impacts into how most companies view activity on LinkedIn to the point where leaders of organizations will get pretty salty with their people if they're doing anything that's outside the scope of advancing the company agenda. And that is, hey, if if you want to find a great way to make your place of employment an exiting ground, that's a great way to do it. What are some of the other implications of those things that you mentioned in terms of organizational mindset in how LinkedIn should be leveraged? I want to talk about that and have you talk a little bit about that before we start the conversation about why are people here and how does that impact how you show up as a seller? For at risk of oversimplifying, but I think it's it's a valuable mental model, is a four-stage maturity model in the way leadership and firms understand the job to be done of LinkedIn. So at the most basic level, like they just wish it didn't exist at all. Like They don't want their people on it, as you said. Oh, what if they get poached? Why are they wasting time? They should be working. So at the most basic level, it's a distraction. It's an annoyance. It's a risk. I wish it didn't even exist. But since it does... Well, I guess our HR people can go post jobs there, but that's it, right? That's the base level. And, and it, I'm making fun of that mindset, but the reality is that's where a lot of companies are. The next step up from that is really seeing it as a company-centric advertising channel. It's, yeah, LinkedIn is a pretty big, there are a lot of people on LinkedIn, like, and, and it's a business opportunity for us. Of course, we're going to post our jobs, but we're also going to build up our company page followers. We're going to promote our events through both organic and paid social. We're going to run paid demand gen campaigns, request demo and content download gated experiences. We're going to gather MQLs. Yeah, like it's a marketing channel. And so we're definitely a step above the, oh, I wish it didn't exist. We're in phase two here. We're very much in a corporate mindset. It is not about people, anybody's people. It is about the company voice, the company outcomes, the company approach. Okay. Now, the third level up is when companies and leadership start saying, well, we tapped that out. There's not much more we can get. We've been doing like a, a, a level two motion for some time now. I think the next thing for us is we need to activate our people. And I usually use that word, activate our people. Our people, we've got X number of people and they've all got an average of a thousand connections or something. Wow. Massive extra reach. Reach for what? We'll reach for all those same things for our case studies, our ads, our job posts and everything. But let's activate our people. And that's when they start whether it's as little, they start doing lunch and learns, they start sending around Monday morning email. Hey, everyone, it'd be awesome if you would share this latest thing. 
hey, everyone, we're trying to hire, please share. And, and so the, what they're really doing is they're treating their people like not really like individuals or, or even like humans at all. They're treating them like Wi-Fi extenders, right? Like yep. basically, hey, if you all would extend our reach, that would be great. Thanks. So what happens in phase three is most of your people just don't want to do it. They're just like, they don't feel respected. They don't feel inspired. They don't see how it helps them. They're like, I don't really want to be a little miniature version of the company page and the company's ad machine. So I'm just not going to do it. I'm going to tell them I'm too busy. And then, but some people will do it. Of course, some people will want to be team players and they'll do it. But then they quickly hit a wall where it's like, nobody engages. So I did what you asked. I shared that, that promotional post. I shared that case study. I shared that two likes on it. And both were from my coworkers and I don't see how this is helping. So I'll go through the motions for a while. Cause I want to be a good team player, but like, honestly, this is, I don't see how this is helping. And then of course, there's lots of questions about the business impact of this. Lots of people saying, how is this moving the needle? And why do we keep talking about this? And why are we focusing on it? In some cases, we even buy tools that help us do this, but it's the same thing. It's just helping us share our own company content and nobody cares. Nobody's listening. And we're going to get to why later, as you said. But yep. so this is phase three, right? Phase one was, I, I wish it didn't exist at all. And phase two is it's a totally a company channel. Phase three is really trying to turn your people into a bunch of miniature company channels. And, and, and it just doesn't deliver the goods. Where you want to get to is, is what I call more like the phase four. And that's where you actually empower and enable your people to show up, not as range extenders for your company page, but as the authentic humans and professionals that they are, where you really enable and empower them to show up and speak up and publicly demonstrate subject matter expertise and, and passion for what they do and who they do it for and build their own reputation and build their own relationships and spark business building conversations of all kinds. And then collectively as a firm, this is how you rise above the crowd. If you took all the companies out there and asked yourself, are they at one, two, three, or four? The great majority are at one, two, three. But that just makes a tremendous opportunity for those who see what four is and, and, and are on the road towards getting there. That is a brilliant list. I feel like I'm sitting here being your personal yes man, but it, you and I see eye to eye in a lot of things. And to your point, there are very few companies that do it. One that comes to mind right off the bat is Gravy. So Casey Graham, the CEO yep. of Gravy, he's actually done a phenomenal job of filtering that down to the point where it's had some real business impact for him that he's never had to use a recruiting firm to hire because his entire team talks about their personal, professional mission, vision, brand in service of the organizational mission, vision, brand. And I think that is absolutely brilliant. It's something that I'm super passionate about too, because one of the great quotes that I had, aside from yours of, hey, our responsibility is to educate and inspire the world to move to us. But one of the things that I'm passionate about is that I fundamentally believe that everybody in a team environment, everybody within an organization has some brilliant that we as leaders of organizations need to help them unlock in pursuit of what their vision for themselves is. So I'm super passionate and super aligned with what you're talking about, which is a great bridge to why are people on LinkedIn and why does this matter and how do we move the needle on that? 
to be more authentic from a selling perspective, more authentic from a leadership perspective, more authentic from an organizational execution perspective? That is a long ass question, but <laughs> I'll have you take that. So if we're going to be buyer centric and if we're going to really build reputation and relationships and rapport, and if we're going to really spark business building conversations and accomplish all this other good, then we better understand why people are on LinkedIn. And I said a few minutes ago, they're not just there looking for a job, a very small portion at any given time of people are actively looking for a job. That's not what most people are doing on LinkedIn. They're certainly not there for your advertising. They're not there to be hunted. So why are they there? Why does anyone spend time at all on LinkedIn? And I say there's only two reasons. One, they want to learn something. And two, they want to advance their own interests. Now, what their own interests are will vary. In, in some cases, it's about advancing their career. It's about tackling some particular problem they want to learn about. In some cases, it's it's about selling or it's, it's about better serving their customer. Like people have a lot of different motivations, but it all boils down to they're there for themselves, for them to learn, for them to advance their interests. So you've got a bunch of people on LinkedIn there for themselves, and then you got a bunch of advertisers and a bunch of hunters blasting stuff at them. And there's a massive disconnect. So here's how you fix that disconnect is you ask yourself, honestly, how can I be interesting and valuable and helpful to my intended audience? How can I show up and how can my entire company show up with an honest intent to educate and inspire and help my intended audience. And I emphasize an honest intent because people will see through it from a mile away if you're faking it. If it's like there's a thin veneer education and a big sales pitch about to burst out from underneath that, you're not doing it right. It, it, an honest intent to educate, inspire, and help others is how you earn a place in people's hearts and people's minds, how you begin to draw them towards you and how you begin to develop that trust we talked about at the outset. And again, is you got the two firms or the two sellers and one is doing none of this and the other is doing this very well. I'm feeling so much more drawn towards the latter. And it all comes from this, like, how can I actually be valuable and helpful to you rather than how can I move you through my process? That's a great framing. I think you're the one that's made a reference in terms of the state of the world. And this ties back into how people are buying. This is the era where everything is on demand and you're picking and choosing what you want to consume. So in an era where everybody is fast forwarding through commercials, don't be a commercial. And there are some egregious examples of how salespeople put themselves into the mode of being commercials. And I want you to talk a little bit about that before we transition into the conversation about mindset, skill sets, tool sets. So I'm big on authenticity and being transparent and building relationships first. What's the opposite that you've seen as a buyer in how typically sellers are engaging with buyers on LinkedIn that just drives you nuts? There's a lot of bad behavior. There's the pitch slappers, right? There's the connect and pitch. It's just like 100 connection requests. And if one of them ex accepts, then boom, here's my pitch. Like That doesn't work anymore. And you know what? Another problem with that is people only count the wins. They don't count the losses. You send 100 connection requests and, and one of those people takes your call and you go, yeah, it worked. Yeah, but you kind of like annoyed 99 people probably. 
And, and sometimes they're probably not going to make a big deal about it once in a while. But if a bunch of people from your company are all hammering them in a really selfish way, you're really burning your brand. The connecting pitch, the, the pitch slappers, that's one bad behavior. Another bad behavior is the post and ghost. It's like, oh yeah, I should be sharing stuff. So I'm just going to blast it. Now here, I'm not just in a hunting mi mindset. I'm back to that other mindset. I'm in the broadcast advertising mindset. So yeah, I'm a social seller. Look at me go. I like every morning I send out a case study or I send out some promotional content from, and I never engage with anybody else. And, it, and then I'm surprised why nobody wants to engage with me. For two reasons. One, because it's all promotional content. It's not actually educational or inspirational or helpful content. But two, because you never engage with anybody else. And you see these people all the time who never spend the time to comment and converse with others, blast it out there, and they walk away. And very seldom do those people succeed. Now, if they have some super senior title and some super sexy firm, or there's some kind of celebrity, they can get away with anything. But for 99% of us, that is not going to work. You get what you give and reciprocity matters a whole lot. People are way more likely to engage with you if you are also making an effort to engage with them. So uh, don't just be a hunter and don't just be a blaster of promotional content. Those are the two if you, if you look at all, take all the sellers in the world, right? A bunch of them aren't doing anything at all, nothing. And then you get a bunch of hunters and you yep. get a few blasters of promotional content and none of those three are going to move the needle. So if you're one of the few who, who thinks and operates differently, the world's your oyster. You have such an opportunity to rise so far above the noise and the sameness of LinkedIn. It's such a massive opportunity. And really, very few are doing it well. Now, I, I get what you're saying. Now, I'm going to put myself in the shoes of a junior mid-level salesperson and say, well, hey, that's great, Steve, but I'm just a low-level or mid-level person. I'm an SDR. Nobody cares about what I have to say or what I think on, it, on certain topics. So how am I going to move the needle in an authentic way by commenting on somebody else? I don't have anything to say. Like, how do I bridge that gap? So what would you say to somebody that says that to you? One of the most successful and amazing social people in my own company in Seismic is an SDR. Eight months ago, she was working in the clothing store and she's an SDR now for a software company. And she gets more engagement on LinkedIn than almost anybody in our company. And we're a company that understands this by and large. She's fantastic. So what does she do? She dismisses that notion that she has nothing to say. She does. She's learning every day, right? She's going through this amazing career journey herself of being an SDR, being in technology, and she's sharing her wins and losses and trials and tribulations in a really human way. She's also sharing what she's learning from her colleagues. She's sharing what she's learning from her prospects and her customers. She's sharing how her own approach to being an SDR is changing as she learns. She is sharing, like she, at no point does she say, listen to me because I'm the world authority on such and such. She's, here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm learning. Here's what I'm seeing. And she gets massive engagement. She puts herself head and shoulders above 99% of SDRs. 
as a result. And so I think we got to break down this notion that you got nothing to say. We got to break down this notion that LinkedIn is about either bragging. I'm so great. She's not doing that. She's not saying, let me tell you how, what an amazing SDR I am. She's saying, let me tell you what I'm learning and let, let me tell you what I see out there. So you, it's not about bragging. I think that holds some people back. They, they see Instagram influencers and, and this very, like very vain approach to social media. And they say, that's not me. So I can't do this. So that's not how you thrive on LinkedIn, not by bragging. So let's be clear on that. But the second thing is you don't need to be some sort of legitimate thought leaders. To me, a thought leader is someone who is actually like writing the map, like they're drawing the map to the future. They're, they're seeing things that others aren't seeing and they're connecting dots that others aren't seeing. And they're truly leading the way into a new future. You don't have to be that in order to be successful on LinkedIn. We are all to some extent subject matter experts in something. We're subject matter experts in our own profession, in our own industry, in our own niche within our industry, in some particular problem that we help our customers solve. We are all subject matter experts in something. And when you bring that with an honest intent, as I said, an honest intent to help others, you can be super successful. So from the SDR all the way up to the CEO and everybody in between, the opportunity is there. And obviously the SDR is going to operate and write differently than the CEO. But right now in most companies, neither one of them is doing it. Yep. So it's not about your title. It's not about your age. It's not about your years of experience. It's about your mindset. I love that. Especially the last part about mindset. The second half of a mantra that I have, my personal mantra is live as if you're going to die tomorrow and learn as if you're going to live forever. I, I heard somebody mention it and I was like, wow, that's really cool. And people have always wondered why my hair is always on fire in terms of how I want to get stuff done and that pinned it. So when you're talking about what that SDR on your team is doing really exceptionally well on, it's the second half of that statement. You're learning as if you're going to live forever. And this is her learning journey. And that's phenomenal. And, and she's learning out loud. She's learning out loud. I think that isn't, we're all learning. We're all yeah. on a journey. Even successful CEOs are on it. They're, pro they're probably at an incredibly high clock speed of learning. I hope yeah. they are. We're all learning. We have an opportunity to learn out loud. When I talk about unlock the brilliance inside of everybody on the team, sharing your learning and learning collaboratively is a great way to be authentic and be out there and get people to know and trust you before they even have a conversation with you. And that's what you talk about all the time. So I'll often say to people, you know, sometimes people come to me and they say, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Like I'm buying into this, but I don't know what to say. I don't know what to talk about. And what I'll often do, and I've done this exercise with a number of people, they say, like, what do you believe? I, so I did this recently with a, like a, a VP, a SVP, I think of sales engineering. And, and he said, I want to be more active, but I don't, I don't know what to say. I said, what do you believe? And he said, I believe sales engineers and sales engineering as a profession is underappreciated in most firms. We're treated like demo jockeys who just get called in for the demo. We're so much more than that. We're the eyes and the ears of the firm. We understand not only our own tools, but our competitors' tools. We understand customer pain points better than anybody. We are not respected enough. I said, great. Who needs to hear that? 
And he said, well, CEOs need to hear that because they need to invest differently in, in their sales engineering organization. And then, great. I said, who else needs to hear that? He said, marketing leaders need to hear that because they rewrite websites and they create content. And they, all, they never talk to their sales engineers. They never ask for their input. And their content and their websites and everything could be so much better if they did. And I said, great. Who else needs to hear that? And he said, juniors, like SDRs, BDRs, they need to hear that because they think the only path up is to become a quota carrying AE. But there's this whole parallel career progression up through sales engineering that can be incredibly rewarding in lots of ways. I said, great. So <laughs> you got a strong belief and you've just very quickly identified at least three different you know, audiences that need to hear that. Go tell yeah. them. That's what you need to talk about. And I think we all can spend a little bit of time and say, what do I believe and who needs to hear it? And that is one way of getting past the, I don't know what, I don't know what to say. And if you look at my SDR colleague that I mentioned at a very different place in her career than this SVP, she has some real beliefs and she wants customers to hear it. She wants prospects to hear it. She wants other SDRs to hear it. She wants AEs to hear it and maybe think differently about the way they work with their SDR. I think the, what do you believe and who needs to hear it? My like model can be super effective and, and help get a lot of people into gear. Some people cringe when I say it, but I'm hardcore about building your personal professional brand. And when people hear the word brand, they think some sort of superficial Instagram, you know, influencer. And that's not what, what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about, your brand is what you care about and what you want out in the world and how you want to impact others that might hear it. Because if you're not speaking out, if you're not showing up, there's probably a whole group of people that wouldn't even trigger a particular path in their career journey. This is a leadership show that we, we primarily do. And we think in terms of, we often talk about when you're thinking about career progression, a lot of people think in terms of ladders, there's a vertical and you just referenced it that when you're thinking about your career journey, think in terms of a lattice, it's not vertical. It, it could be sideways. It could, in some instances, it could be backwards to go for, forward faster. That's how I understood what you're talking about when you're talking about, Hey, SDR to sales, to account executive, there's a whole sales engineering path that you could go into marketing You can go in all sorts of different places. But if people aren't talking about these things out loud, then there's a whole group of people that don't advance their careers and might not hear that message. So it doesn't matter. You don't have quote unquote thought leadership. The part that resonated that with me that you mentioned is everybody is a subject matter expert in something. And that something could be, what do you care about? And what are you learning? And just share that because that's going to move the needle and that's going to build an attraction model and engagement with you because there are other people that are thinking the same thing. So say it out loud. So Steve, this has been a great conversation. We've spent a lot of time talking about mindsets and skill sets and how you can develop that. One of the things that I struggle with is figuring out how do we integrate the personal professional brand at the desk level with the organizational brand? Do you have any thoughts on that? I do. I Here's how I like to think about it is I say that brand lives at the edge of the organization and it, it, to parallel this to computing, right? If, if you look at uh, the resource industry, you look at logistics and transportation, you look at even manufacturing and lots of things, there's been this push towards edge computing. And in the old model was that all the computer processing power lived at home office, lived in the mainframes and lived in the home office, but out in the field, it was all dumb instruments. 
And there's been this evolution in recent years towards edge computing, which is pushing processing power out into the oil fields, out into the factories, out into the trucks, out into all the, at the edge of the organization. And it, it's been absolutely transformational in these industries because now you're so much smarter at the edge of the organization, so much more nimble, so much more effective. And I think that the same thing is starting to happen with marketing and with brand is that it no longer lives at headquarters. It's no longer just the company voice, the company channels, the company's ads, the company's authorized spokespeople. Now brand lives at the edge. It lives in your people and, and your corporate brand, especially in B2B is really the sum total of the brands of all your people. So to me, it's not company brand or personal brand. It's how we harness this and empower this and enable this in a way to push powerful branding opportunities to the edge of the firm. And thereby, we rise far above our competitors who are perhaps still locking everything down at, at the central headquarters. That is a phenomenal description. I totally resonated with your dumb terminal comment because I actually worked in places that had dumb terminals. Some companies are treating their people, right? That was exactly where I was going with yeah. that. It's like, how do you view your people? Head down, you keep your mouth closed. Yep. You're not authorized. There, there's a press release coming. And I'm, I'm not saying that you don't have to manage. I'm not saying there's not risk. I'm not saying that you want thousands of your people just flying off the handle, especially in a time of crisis or something like that. No, there's risk management, there's controls, all this stuff. But but it's more of a philosophical statement that if you see your people as much more than dumb terminals, if you see your people as intelligent nodes, you're going to build a far more authentic and far more powerful brand. That brings up an interesting other contrast. We've heard a huge active, vibrant metropolitan communities, and we've heard about ghost towns. So there's a relationship there between what you're describing in terms of brand living at the edge of an organization and whether you're in a vibrant community or a ghost town. So tell me a little bit about how that ties together. Yeah, I tend to speak about that in terms of the super connected enterprise. And, and this is aspirational. People will sometimes challenge me and say, okay, who's a super connected enterprise now? I say, nobody is. It's a future state. It's a journey towards this. And, and, and I do contrast it, as you said, to the ghost town. So here's what I mean in the context of social media, right? In a ghost town, the company is there. The logo is there. The company pages, the company content, the brand colors, the company is there. The people are gone. There's no people there. It's like tumbleweeds blowing through the streets. It's like a, it's a, like a ghost town in the old West. You see those photos from those ghost towns, right? Or the, the old rickety gas station. The sign is still hanging there, but there hasn't been anybody there in a long time. So I believe that's the way a whole lot of companies are operating on LinkedIn. They think it's all about company pages, company voice, company content. Their people are an afterthought. The super connected enterprise, as I like to call it, is the exact opposite of that. It, the people are there. 
hundreds of people, thousands of people in the case of a larger firm, each one showing up, speaking up, building their reputation, building their relationships, bringing their voice, engaging with their customers and prospects and partners and and industry influencers and all sorts and building countless relationships and having countless conversations and points of content. And, and the way I see it is if you take two firms that are otherwise equal, let's say, imagine two firms, each with a thousand people, each with similar financials and, and everything else like that. One of them is operating as a ghost town. The other is on the road towards becoming a super a super connected enterprise. I firmly believe the super connected enterprise is going to win hands down every time. And by win, in every way. I want to work for the super connected enterprise. I want to buy from the super connected enterprise. I want to refer my friends to go buy from them or work from them. I want to go to their events. I want to consume their content. I want to reshare their content. Like it, it, it's across sales dimensions, talent acquisition dimensions, marketing dimensions, and more that all other things being equal, that super connected enterprise is going to become an absolute magnet. They're going to become a talent magnet. They're going to become a demand magnet. They're going to become a PR magnet. They're going to become an everything magnet while the ghost town languishes and, and, and becomes increasingly obsolete. That's phenomenally powerful, especially with how you tied it into the business impact when it comes to talent attraction, retention, development, bottom line impacts in terms of demand gen and revenue driving components. There's like an end-to-end -end implication of all of that you're talking about. Social is way too important to be left to marketers. And it's way too important to be left to marketing metrics. And I think that's we talked about the, that, that maturity model, right? I think when you're low down on that model, you just think social is a marketing function. And, and I, I talk to people like that all the time. I talk to a lot of people all the time. And it seems like maybe half or almost half are very much, oh, you said social? Go talk to marketing. I firmly believe that social done right is far more than a marketing function. Now, like, it is a sales function as we started out. Of course, it yeah. it's also a customer success and a customer service function. It's a talent acquisition function. It's an executive function. Like done right, social is a strategic advantage across the entire organization. Yet a whole lot of people are trying to leave it to marketing. They're trying to measure it by the way marketers measure things. And they're missing 90% of the opportunity here. I couldn't have said it better myself. I want to distill down this phenomenal conversation with, I don't know, 500 key takeaways that we've had throughout the conversation into maybe the two or three that you feel are the most important. What are some simple key takeaways that people can be doing at the desk level that's going to move the needle on the journey to becoming that super connected enterprise? I it starts as everything else does. It starts with mindsets. It starts with internal conversations about what the future can and ought to look like and, and why that's challenging. It's not easy, right? If it was easy, everyone would do it. If it, you know, if it was quick, we'd already be done. So it, I think people often have very transactional mindsets and very short-term horizons. And when they can't flip a switch and make something happen, they decide it's not worthy. And I always say, look, reputation isn't quick or transactional and relationships aren't. And, and like, th this is a journey, not a destination. It, it's not a light switch you can flick. You can't become buyer-centric 
overnight. You can't become a super connected enterprise overnight. You can't build powerful brand at the edge of the organization overnight. These things take a lot of time to develop. But if you're not having real conversations at senior levels about what's possible, and if you're not willing to rethink what you do and why you do it and how, then you're not even taking the first step on the journey. So I think it, it's got to start at or near the top of the firm. You're going to have a hard time. You can champion this all you want from the bottom or the middle of the firm. And that's important. Having champions throughout the firm is absolutely important. But ultimately, to get your firm on the road, you're going to need real momentum at or very near to the top of the firm. So I think it, it, you've got to start with the right kind of conversations. You've got to focus not on immediate activities or immediate outcomes. Or you, you can't kill it by trying to jam it into just your immediate your current ways of measuring things, you got to have real conversations about what's possible at the top of the firm. And as you start to see this different destination, then you can work back from that and you can start planning the kinds of training, the kinds of activities, the kinds of measurement, the kinds of tools you might need. You can work back. But if you don't have a vision and a conversation of the endpoint, then you've got no way to work back. Phenomenal wrap up, Steve. It ties into one of my, my, my fundamental thought processes, which is attitude reflects leadership. So if you want the people who are leading the charge in your organization to have a particular attitude about anything, that flows from the top. So I think that's a great point. Awesome conversation, Steve. I really enjoyed having you on and that shouldn't be surprising considering how well, how much we go back and forth on LinkedIn and whatnot. For those listening, if I'm recommending must follow, must connect people, and please do not pitch slap him, connect with Steve on LinkedIn, follow him at Seismic. He's got, he's a fountain of knowledge. A lot of organizations can learn tons from this short conversation that we just had. Thank you for joining us, Steve. It was a lot of fun. And for those listening, you can find us on all of our standard podcasts or your favorite podcast platforms. We are on TikTok. We are on YouTube. You can find us all the time on LinkedIn. We're even on Facebook. We're not on Instagram yet. I'll leave that to LB. Thanks again for joining us. And we're looking forward to more great conversations on the next episode of Cascading Leadership. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.